are my age, then you remember when salad meant only one thing. Iceberg lettuce, chunks of pale tomato, and maybe, if you were lucky, some shredded carrots. With Russian dressing, of course. Farm-to-table, locavore, sustainably raised, those terms, those ideas, didn't exist in the 1960s and 70s. And there was no such thing as a foodie. But then along came Alice Waters. I was looking for taste. I was really looking for taste. And ultimately, I ended up at the doorsteps of the organic local farmers because they were the ones that were growing food for taste. Alice Waters wasn't trying to revolutionize the way Americans eat when she opened Chez Panisse in 1971, but she did. Alice Waters at her kitchen table on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. On today's menu at Chez Panisse, golden beet carpaccio with cucumbers, nasturtiums, capers, and watercress. Now that's a salad. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam A., this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Alice Waters essentially created California cuisine in the 1970s, and from there it spread across the country, leaving a trail of organic vegetables and fresh herbs, farm markets, and innovative cooking in its wake. So Mary Jordan was very excited to visit Ms. Waters at home in May of 2019 for the Academy of Achievement to talk about her role in transforming American food. (laughs) Alice Waters, what a joy to be in your kitchen. Thank you. You were born in 1944, and remind people what food was like in America in the 50s and 60s. It was all about quantity, and, and it was less about taste. We were very, very limited in what we ate during the war years. And so when that was over, it was like um, people wanted food. And that was kind of the beginning of the fast food industry. And so in came the food that was, you know, very easy to cook, frozen foods and, and just packaged whole meals that you just heated up in the oven. And people felt liberated from the idea of cooking. And I think they really felt liberated because um, it was never considered in this country as being uh, 
a pleasure to cook. <laughs> it was always a duty, uh, uh, particularly of women. And then you went to Paris. I did. I went to Paris. How old were you on that magical trip? I was 19. And you started eating raspberries and strawberries <laughs> that basically would, would go on to change how America ate. But food was really a very big surprise because I, I just was afraid of things that I didn't know about. And yet, in the context of a, the country that really cared so much about how people ate and what people ate, I, I, became, I was drawn into it. You know, like the aroma of the bakery. And you go in and you taste that warm baguette. Seeing all of the fruits, the vegetables that were going to be on the menu displayed in the front of the restaurants to bring you into that experience. The stores were different also, right? You know, at the time in America, we just had, we didn't have all these farmers no. markets as we do now. Well, I was going to school and every day I walked from my little apartment up the market street to get to the university. And I, I couldn't believe the beauty, the lettuces, the, the colors. And it was always changing because it changed with the seasons. And it even changed from a morning market to an afternoon market because the farmers would bring in different things in the evening. And I, I guess the aliveness of the food was irresistible. How would you describe the difference between the strawberry you ate over there and the ones that you had known in the States? Well, certainly those wild strawberries that I had in France had a kind of intensity about them. I do remember eating strawberries right in the garden when I was a little child, when they were warm in the sun, and I picked them off the plant. And so that, that stayed with me somehow. And then when I tasted that wild strawberry, I wanted to know exactly where it came from. <laughs> and then I found out that you had to go out in the woods to pick them. And I, I wanted to have those again here in California. And actually, I found somebody who was willing to plant the forest at Chez Benice. I must say, a lot of people went backpacking in Europe and also noticed that there was better food, more intense food, as you say. What was different about Alice Waters that brought that home and made it a life work? It's hard to say exactly. It wasn't just about the food. It was about the concerts we went to. It was about the, the beauty of the parks, of the cathedrals, of, of the, 
the, the cafes, the, the life that, that people were living, it seemed so civilized to me. It seemed so, so uh, real. I just wanted to live like the French. And when I came back home, I tried to find the food, of course, but I lit the candles on my table when I sat down for dinner. I set the table in a very particular way. I bought the napkins and I folded them. And I even, you know, picked flowers in the neighborhood to put on the table because I wanted it to be beautiful. And food, good food, was kind of the center of conversation and connection to the community? Exactly. When Alice Waters returned from Paris, she landed in the middle of the anti-war movement. It was the 1960s in Berkeley, California, ground zero of the counterculture. She became politicized and listened carefully to Mario Savio, leader of the free speech movement, when he talked about how we are all responsible for one another. She took the message to heart. Even before you opened the iconic, now (laughs) Chez Panisse, one of the best known and revered restaurants in America, you were having small dinners with very interesting people (laughs) in Berkeley. Could you tell us about that time, right before you opened your restaurant? A friend of mine, uh, David Goins, was a good friend of a number of people that were printing a small newspaper in San Francisco. It was called the San Francisco Express Times. And so they would have meetings at our house. And I would be there sort of listening to their conversations about what they wanted to put in the newspaper. And then David had this idea, well, why don't we do a a restaurant column? Called it Alice's Restaurant. And so I would try and find a recipe to be in that part of that column. And it pushed me into asking everybody I knew, uh, what do you like to eat? And do you have a special recipe that I could use for this column? And I started making these uh, dishes at home and then feeding them to the people that had gathered to work on the newspaper. And they loved what I cooked. And your friends kept coming back and they wanted more and more food. (laughs) (laughs) Is it at that point you realized that maybe you had a special gift for cooking? I wasn't sure that I had a gift for cooking, but I knew that I had a gift for finding the ingredients, finding the dishes that people like to eat. I was still intimidated by the cooking process, so that's why I relied on, on recipes from other people. I wasn't at all ready to improvise. Luckily, someone gave me the book, uh, the cookbooks of Elizabeth David, and her recipes were very bare bones. And so I had to interpret what she meant. And sometimes I was less successful and sometimes I was more. But she gave me a real aesthetic about food that 
the simplicity of it, the, the kind of purity of it she instills through her beautiful writing. You don't seem too fond of recipes. <laughs> Is that fair <laughs> to say? True. That's fair to say. <laughs> and, or measuring things exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so what is it, if it's not, you know, a quarter cup of this and a pinch <laughs> of that, what's the driving um, success of a good meal? I think it all has to do with ingredients. It's about ripeness. It's about finding the right olive oil and tasting and comparing. What vinegar do I want to use? How much garlic? You know, but you're always tasting and adjusting all the way to the end. But I, I cook very, very simply. <laughs> you do you know, like to cook with others or like? Uh, I love to cook with other people. I do. And I usually have friends come for dinner on Sundays, and I, I buy the ingredients, and then they all come, and we talk about what we want to do. And it's the way that we cook at Chez Panisse. We don't have recipes that we follow. Yes, we do in pastry. We know certain quantities because you need that. But we are using our oral history of cooking, in the, in, the, in the kitchens. We're being inspired by cookbooks, but we're, we're really fine-tuning it together, and every day, it's a new day. So if Alice Waters was left on a desert island, you have <laughs> no, nothing else, but you can bring four ingredients. Garlic. What else? Olive oil. A really great loaf of bread. And a salad. Let's talk about salad. <laughs> Let's talk Let's about talk salad. About Let's salad. talk about you salad. You are credited with many things. The slow food movement, helping women in the field. Goat cheese, American goat cheese. Everybody <laughs> talks about before Alice Waters. It was, it was just from France. And the salad. Really, you changed the way Americans eat salad. How'd you do that? I ate salad in France, and it was kind of a revelation to me because it was served as a special course after the main dish. And the idea was that it sort of cleansed your palate. And so it was never a really big salad. It was a mixture of things. Now, the salad that I'm probably most known for is the mesclant salad. And that word means a mix of things. And it was a very special mix in the south of France. It would have, you know, garlic sometimes, anchovies sometimes. It was kind of a, a peasant kind of mix of things that the farmer picked in his field. It always had roquette or rocket. It always had probably dandelion greens, things are a little bitter, frise, maybe some colored lettuces like oak leaf, red oak leaf. And I, I took those seeds and I brought them back here. They let you through customs. <laughs> <laughs> I never told anybody. <laughs> and I planted them in my backyard. And when the restaurant really started, I had 
a whole salad garden that covered my whole lawn in the backyard. And so right beside you, for those listening on this podcast, it looks like a flower arrangement. <laughs> for me, it's the mixture that makes the magic. Let's talk about 1971. You don't have that much money, to say the least. You're only 27, and you want to open a restaurant. How did you pick the place that's now on Shattuck Avenue that millions of people have gone to? Well, I was looking at a lot of different places in Berkeley with my friend, my good friend, Tom Luddy. So we went to places that were sort of a little too dark, too big. And then we saw this house on Shattuck Avenue that was a plumbing shop. It was just a two-story stucco house, but it was commercially zoned. And I said, ah, it could be in a house. So it could be just like I was serving my friends at home. A plumbing shop. A plumbing shop. It had pipes in the front yard. So it, it looks like a house. It, it looks looked like, like a house. But at the time they were selling. And you yeah. thought, okay. Okay. This, and why not call it Alice's Restaurant? Well, Alice's Restaurant, that song was attached to Alice on the East Coast. And I knew I didn't want my name in fault. Uh, I had gone to see movies with Tom Luddy, who was running a repertory theater, and I saw the films of Pagnol, Marcel Pagnol, and I fell in love with these films made in the 30s in France. Ça y est, Elzear Lopate va venir, et lui. Il ne parle plus, pas un mot, pas un geste. Le docteur vient de passer. Et qu'est-ce qu'il a dit Il a dit, il est cuit. Oh, dites, Monsieur Brun, panis est cuit. Oh, mon pauvre Noreva. And one of the characters in the films were, well, his name was Panisse. Uh, it had a certain ring to it. It could have been Chez Marius or Chez Fanny, but the name Panisse stuck. And uh, he, as Tom pointed out, he was the only one in the films that ever made any money. <laughs> so maybe that was <laughs> well, the reason. I must say, I was at your fabulous restaurant last night, and <laughs> one of the things that struck me was that it's not very big. No. And you could have expanded that. It's almost 50 years. It's shocking, but it's almost 50 years since you opened it. You could have easily expanded that and filled it every night and made a lot of money. <laughs> How come you didn't? It's still a small restaurant in a house. Well, I really believed in the values that I learned in the 60s. And one of them was not to do something to make money. Don't do it to make money. Do it because you love the work. And I was never, ever interested in making money. I was ashamed even that I put my, the money from the restaurant in a bank. But I, I knew that if I made really tasty food, that people would come to eat, and that I would be able to keep the restaurant open. And fortunately, it has made money. 
It's important to me to pay the people well who work there. It was never about having an empire <laughs> with lots of different... Uh, I, I didn't want to travel to another place to get to another you restaurant. You must have been asked so many times yes. to open a restaurant in L.A., New York, even the Louvre in France. <laughs> that was incredible, actually. Well, that was the one place where I really entertained the idea because it was to be part of the decorative arts wing of the museum. And I thought it could be sort of an international symbol of the beauty of food and of nourishment. And what better place than the center of Paris? It was fairly shocking at the time that an American <laughs> woman was asked to, to open a restaurant in France. Um, but then what happened? Well, I understood that it was a very big bureaucracy. And that when, in fact, all of the different people who made decisions about that particular location, um, that I wouldn't be able to do it the way that I wanted to do it. I was given a contract, basically, for kind of a fast food restaurant. And I just said no. At a time when um, so many people are talking about income inequality in the United States and the difference between the owners or the CEOs and the workers, you give your workers in the restaurant stock options. Yes, we did. It's fairly revolutionary. <laughs> fairly revolutionary. Well, I guess, um, again, that when you, you have the pleasure of, of working with a group of people, not in that pyramid structure of a normal restaurant kitchen where there's a chef at the top, and there's sort of the workers at the bottom. When you're working more as a team, that, that it seems right to, to have them benefit from the success of the restaurant. It must have been seductive, though, the idea that you could open all these restaurants across the country and make a lot of money. How did you stay true to the hippie 1960s <laughs> Alice? I, I just couldn't imagine doing it. I couldn't imagine doing it well. I felt like there would be a compromise, always, because I, you know, it takes so much to, to keep Chez Panisse just at a certain level of quality. And I, I just couldn't imagine doing it. And I love knowing the customers who come in. You know, I know them by name. I love knowing all the people who work there. There are almost 110 people who work at Chez Panisse. 
Uh, Quite a lot of famous people come to your place, too. <laughs> you know, Francis Ford Coppola, Bill Clinton, movie stars, everybody comes to your restaurant, but also Julia Child. And you were on her TV show, her famous TV show in the 90s. What was she like? She was also a Francophile. Um, what was it like to cook with her? I was very intimidated. <laughs> you know, she's such a presence. And now for Alice's Mediterranean tapenade, that sturdy mixture of olives and anchovies and capers laced with fragrant olive oil. Hers is really the best I've ever eaten, even better than mine. Rather than pureeing everything together, she chops each item individually and it makes a real difference. Plenty of garlic in it? Lots of garlic. Uh, uh, these are uh, some green olives. These are French picholine olive. Oh. I think we'll begin by... by we became very good friends after that time. But she was towering over me. She's 6'2". How, how tall are you? <laughs> I'm 5'2". <two. laughs> and so she, she was way up there. Uh, but she was so uh, helpful to me. She wanted me to feel comfortable about what I was cooking. And I was cooking something so simple, you know. And she would ask me questions. You, how do you cut this, you know, how do you cut that onion like that or whatever I was doing? She said, it's so interesting to me. <laughs> she also talked about the perfume of the mushrooms. Yes, she, she was A lovely so way. gracious and so, I don't know, I, I appreciated her energy and her humor so much and long for her to teach us all how to cook again in this country. It strikes me that famous people seem to follow you around, including on your flight to Paris. You had very interesting <laughs> entertainment. You're only 19, you're going on this life-changing trip, and just tell us about what happened <laughs> on that flight. Well, we had Louis Armstrong and his group on the flight, actually going to, to um, Iceland on the way. And we were going to Paris, but they were getting off midway. Just happened to be on your Just flight. Just happened to be on our flight. And it was in those good old days where you could stand up and and play an instrument, or smoke a cigarette, <laughs> or share played? a glass of wine. <laughs> um, and so it was very exciting to have them play. Do you think you lived a charmed life? You know, I feel I've been incredibly lucky, really, that almost I feel faded that I'm not, I'm not really following these instincts. I'm driven in some way. By fate. By fate. Mm -hmm. 
You could hear the howl of the wind outside in sunny California. It's unusually rainy and we're in your kitchen with this gorgeous fireplace. And when you lit it, you put some rosemary on the logs. You always do that? I always like the perfume of the fire in the house and rosemary, it quickly changes the tone of the room, it changes the way that I feel. And so whenever I come over a trip, I just put some rosemary, light it on the fire, and just walk around my house. I used to do that at Chez to make the, the entryway really inviting. Or we're cooking a dinner from the south of France or having a party. And aroma is very, very effective. Bread cooking or pizza cooking up in the wood oven upstairs uh, really helps people to feel at home. It's not just the taste or even it's the It's not look. just the taste, no. I want to really excite all of people's senses. So I want it to smell good. I want it to taste good. I want it to look really beautiful. I don't want too loud uh, sounds, uh, music to be too interruptive. I want it maybe a little bit of music when it's quiet at the beginning of the evening or a little jazz late at night. But I don't want it to be interrupting people's conversations. It's almost romantic the way you describe romantic it. Romantic in a word. <laughs> but I like people to pick things up with their hands too. So we always serve something, whether it's a crouton to begin, whether they pick that up, that you want them to peel the orange. Or I, I, I always thought we should have a little sign that, that says, eat with your hands, <laughs> so that you feel comfortable about picking up the quail and, you know, eating the bone, the Are leg. We, is I, there a connection between food and romance? For me, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a very sensual experience to eat. It's about making that connection without words sometimes. You just want to feel it. I believe you. I'm sitting here with you, looking at you beside this beautiful salad, and I can, you know, I guess if, if you were telling younger people who wanted to do what they love to do, wh what is it that they need? Is it that they need determination or they need passion? What do they need? I think the most important thing right now is to put down the electronics, put them away. Just put them away. Put your cell phone. Hide it. Hide your cell phone. Uh, because it really changes your relationship to the world around you. Every morning I take a walk, and sometimes I, I just think, oh, it's too much work to do that. It's too hard. I just feel like staying in bed. And I'm never disappointed because I'm looking around me and I'm looking at the flowers in other people's gardens. I'm looking up to the sky and seeing the weather change. And, and this morning it rained and I got a little wet. But I believe as Montessori 
helped me to understand that our senses are our pathways into our minds. So when we are not using our hands and we're not listening, we're only getting part of the picture. Alice Waters is referring here to Maria Montessori, the famous educator. Back when Waters was living in Europe in her 20s, she studied Montessori's philosophy and methods, which focus on hands-on learning. And even though Alice Waters changed her career path, Montessori's principles became a central part of her life in food, especially when she began the Edible Schoolyard program with kids in Berkeley's Martin Luther King School. It's about 25 years old now, and it began at a middle school in Berkeley that has a thousand kids, and they speak almost 22 different languages at home. So it was a really good cross-section of teenagers, and I had the opportunity to create this program because the principal of the school felt that it needed to be beautified in some way. He had no idea that I wanted to really plant a vegetable garden and have a cooking classroom so that students could learn math or science out in a garden so that they could learn by doing a very important Montessori principle and probably the best way to retain knowledge. The Edible Schoolyard was never meant to be a cooking or gardening class per se. It was meant to connect Berkeley kids to nature and to where food actually comes from, to subtly encourage better food choices, to make other academic subjects more compelling, and to give students an entree into the world's cultures. As Alice Waters explained in her memoir, Coming to My Senses, she got artists involved in the redesign of the charmless building where they launched the project. She made sure there were always flowers on the table, that the kitchen tools were laid out neatly, and that seasonal vegetables and fruits were displayed at the entrance. When the kids walked in, Waters says, they knew instantly that something special had been done for them. They knew they were loved. So how many schools in America now have, (laughs) from this one that you started, how many? Well, it's kind of amazing because we have been building a network around the world. And now we have almost 7,000 schools. You're holding up a map that's so impressive. (laughs) Wow. 7,000, wow. And anyone can access this network. The Edible Schoolyard Network. And your dream now, your next project, is to get for all the public students in this huge state of California, what do you want? I want all students in the state of California to have a free, sustainable school lunch. I want them to sit down together and have time to eat and talk. And I imagined that school lunch could actually be part of an academic subject. So when you're studying 
For instance, the geography of the Arabian Peninsula. Maybe what you're having for lunch is some hummus, but you're buying those ingredients. The cafeteria workers, the cooks in the cafeteria, will buy directly, like we have been doing for 47 years at Chez Panisse, directly from the producers who are local and sustainable. Can the state afford that? Well, I believe that we can't afford not to do this. We have climate upon us. We have an obesity epidemic. We have diabetes. One it's an investment in health? It's, it's, an it's in about the health of our children deeply. It's about supporting the farmers who are taking care of the land. It's about giving them the real cost of food. No middleman taking that money. They, they bring their food directly and they are paid for it. It's a very important relationship to develop. And once you do it, you can never go back because they bring the values of stewardship right through the cafeteria door. They bring it into the students. And I think once young people taste the intensity of good food. There's no going back. There's no going back because, again, it's all about taste. Do you think everyone can be I charmed do. by lettuce? You know what? <laughs> I do. If I hadn't seen what has happened at the Edible Schoolyard Project with teenagers, if I hadn't seen that, I may have wondered whether I could really make an impression on children that came from different backgrounds, eating all kinds of things. But they fall in love. It's six weeks to kale. <laughs> so they start with what and they, and they end up now, loving kale. <laughs> what happens if they grow it and they cook it, they all eat it. And that is what I've learned. If they only grow it, 95% eat it. If they only cook it, 95. But if they grow it and cook it, they eat it all. What's and it doesn't matter what it is. You taught America how to really think about the, what we now take for granted, the farm-to-table movement. You were the first one who really lit that on fire, said we should know the plot of land where our tomatoes come from, organic food. How do you feel about this amazing legacy of healthy food, knowing where your food comes from, organic food? Again, I feel very lucky that I was in France when France was a, a slow food country. In other words, they had all of these values in place. They knew their farmers. They would go to the market. They would connect with them. They served the food um, that was in their region, so it was locally available. How do you think we're doing now in the United States on this? Well, I'm very 
encouraged when I really look at how the farm-to-table movement has grown. But when you look at it in relationship to the number of people in this country, it's shocking. We haven't really been able to change the diet of, of America. And we haven't been able to really connect with the local sustainable farmers and ranchers. Why? We haven't because the fast food industry is so powerful and persuasive. And they have taught us a whole other set of values. So that when we eat fast food, we're digesting the fast, cheap, and easy. We're understanding that cooking is drudgery, that farming is drudgery. We're understanding that things should be available 24-7, that it doesn't matter where they come from because there's always more where that came from. That you can eat tomatoes year-round or blueberries and not just in season. uh, I mean, we want avocado sandwiches now. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. And where did the avocados come from? What does it take to grow them? What's it causing to the farming industry around the world by our desire to have them wherever we are? Well, how do you see this going? Because there's no doubt that more people are interested in cooking. Healthy food is on the rise. There's more consciousness among students. At the same time, there's more diabetes and overweight people. So what's the trend line? What's the future of food? Well, I think it's inevitable that we have to change the way that we're eating around the world because we are affecting climate and in a very big way. We're shipping food everywhere. We're farming in a, an unsustainable way. If we farm organically, we can take all of our scraps and put them in the ground and pull the carbon back down in the earth. I call this a delicious revolution because it, it is not difficult to do. I really, it's almost like just turning around and going the other way. And it's inside of all of us. It's part of What's humanity. What's inside? The, the desire to be connected to nature, the desire to take care of the land, to gather around a table, to eat with children and friends. This has been part of civilization for a millennium. And this is an amazing thing that we could do. But we have to not just think that health begins in our choice of food in a grocery store. Health begins in the ground. And so our farmer, Bob Kennard, he's amazing. He says his carrots are 10 times more nourishing than anybody else's. And, and you were one of the first people <laughs> to put where the, where the food comes from, the farm, name on your menu. Now we see that all across the country. But that's because I was so grateful to Bob. <laughs> and I just wanted him to know that. And 
we started putting out the names on the farms because we wanted people to know that we were supporting those people that were taking care of the land and that the good taste came from those people picking that food when it's ripe. Do you still worry that there's too many antibiotics and too much pesticide? I know there's too many. And I know that that is really what's making us sick. And the food industry is designing food that is addictive. I mean, lots of salt, lots of sugar. But even they're trying to really deceive us in the way that the packaging is done. The, there's many uh, labels that tell us what's in the food, but it doesn't tell us how it's farmed. I want to know how it is farmed. You sent a letter to Bill Clinton when he was president. <laughs> I did. What did you want from him? I've wanted him to plant a garden <laughs> on the White House lawn. I imagined on the front lawn. Because if the presidency represented sustainability and, and spoke about nourishment, that that message would go around the world. I remember when FDR and, and Eleanor Roosevelt, she had a vegetable garden, but they they inspired the victory gardens that were planted during World War II. And I knew the power of the presidency. And so I thought if they did that, and if they ate that way in the White House and invited the dignitaries from around the world, that a message would come. This was a fairly radical idea, because it wasn't in the 70s and 80s, the White House lawn didn't have arugula on it, right? Uh, no, it didn't. <laughs> so what was the reaction? Well, I, I think that uh, they heard me, and they were friends, very good friends of friends, and I know that Hillary planted a roof garden with tomatoes. And of course, Michelle Obama then took it to a new level. It was very exciting. <laughs> it was very exciting to see that garden being planted right away at the beginning of the presidency. And she planted that garden with students. Did you talk to her about that? I did. I talked to her about it uh, before uh, uh, Obama became president. And I had hoped that she would really do it, but I never imagined that she would do it so quickly. And with uh, students involved and also to, to build a compost and make a hive for the bees, and it was... Has it had an effect, do you think? I know it did. I know it did. It, that image of her digging in the garden went around the world. I was in Rome when that happened, and uh, it was front-page news. If you had one wish regarding food in the United States, what would it be? Get a magic wand for Alice Waters, and she can do <laughs> one thing. One thing. One thing would be a free 
sustainable school lunch for every single child K through 12. Because that would then in turn do what? That in turn would address climate, it would deeply nourish the children, it would support all the farmers who are taking care of the land for the future of this planet. And those farmers and ranchers and fishermen need to feel supported completely, financially and by our gratefulness for the work that they do. You have fairly modest kitchen, is that fair? I mean, it's gorgeous, but I would like people, can we just walk around for a second to see? You don't have like this huge oven or... Um... Well, I do have a fireplace in my kitchen. And I, I love that. I've had that built in my house uh, because it is a place of warmth, it's a place of beauty, and it's a place of cooking. So, What I, do you cook right in there? I cook right in the fireplace. Everything? Like chicken, pizza? Like, like, <laughs> like so many things. I have a grill that I put in my fireplace. I just put it in. What, if you're home alone and you want comfort food just for, for yourself, what, what do you cook? Well, some, what do I cook for myself when yeah. I'm at home? I always cook a salad. That's <laughs> I why you're so skinny. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, I always have salad with a meal. And sometimes if I have the fire lit, I might put something like a piece of chicken on the fire or a piece of fish. Now fish and I'll have salad. I might boil some potatoes. I might make some spicy rice. But I don't cook in a really complicated way. And you don't start with a recipe. That's right. <laughs> what do you start with? I always start with what I found in the market. Always. And I don't do a lot of baking. I'm, I limit the, the amount of sweets I eat. I love to cook right on the burner. And so I might make a tortilla there. Right? D without right. a pan, anything? Without a pan, I guess. I, I have to show you. <laughs> I might make a little avocado salad, but I just put the tortilla right on the stove. I just turn it over. And I'd love to to do this for my breakfast because I feel so connected. You know, there's the, the aroma, again, of the tortilla cooking. You're nowhere near retiring, and you are <laughs> running around the country uh, talking about the great need for school lunches. But the last thing I just wanted to know yeah. is, you've talked about this multi-generational commune. <laughs> that you might end up in. Tell us about that. Well, I've always thought about what was going to happen for the end of my life. And I guess I have this idea 
that it should be a working commune, almost set up like, like the missions in California with a big inner courtyard and rooms around the perimeter that go into the courtyard or out into the world, and that the front part could be actually a business. My latest fantasy is to have it be a tortilleria. And I want a printing press where we print the news of the movement and wrap the hot tortillas in the papers of the press so that you would really take that home and learn about all the varietals of corn. Maybe it's, maybe it's a work of art that's on the papers that we print. Or maybe, maybe it's some photograph of somebody, a farmer someplace. And we could curate that as, as part of the project. We as the elders could help to curate that newspaper, if you will. And uh, maybe the tortillas themselves would go directly to the schools. And everyone contributes and no one's alone. Exactly, that, that we could always count on friends to eat together. That's Alice Waters, the owner of Chez Panisse, the queen of California cuisine, and the woman who altered America's food landscape. She was interviewed by Mary Jordan, who by day is national correspondent for The Washington Post. Alice Waters is the winner of two James Beard Awards, one for Outstanding Chef and one for Lifetime Achievement. She's written more than a dozen books and cookbooks. The most recent is called Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook. If you have a chance this summer to sink your teeth into a ripe, organic, juicy strawberry, savor it and offer up your thanks to Alice Waters. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. Our thanks, as always, to the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation for funding What It Takes.